electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Continues the S&P and Nasdaq hitting their highest levels today since April of 2022. A fresh 52-week high for the transports too. That is the scorecard on Wall Street. The action though is just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan with John Fort. The Dow extending its winning streak to a seventh day thanks to Microsoft closing at a new high after pricing its AI tools. Strong earnings for Bank of America. Morgan Stanley also helping this broad market rally. Plus, we are awaiting earnings from Interactive Brokers, J.B. Hunt, and Western Alliance. We will bring you those results as soon as they cross. All right. Well, we will take the pulse of the industrial real estate business when we are joined by the CEO of Prologis, which reported mixed results today. Meantime, stocks extending their recent strength, seven straight positive sessions for the Dow, longest streak since March of 2021, while the S&P 500 touched a fresh 52-week high. Meanwhile, Microsoft closing at an all-time high, the market cap standing at nearly $2.7 trillion. Joining us now is Mona Mahajan, Edward Jones Senior Investment Strategist, and Samir Samana, Wells Fargo Investment Institute Senior Global Market Strategist. Guys, welcome to the show. Samir, I'll start with you. We closed at 45.55 on the S&P 500. A, a number of traders noting that 45.50 is really this technical level of key resistance. Want to get your thoughts on the rally and whether it continues to have legs here. Sure. We saw those levels last spring, and you know that didn't turn out too well. I mean, what we would say is, you know, look, one, we're not surprised at all. You just have these episodes where things kind of align for the markets, either to the upside or to the downside. So this would be one of these overshoots. You know, our year-end target range is 4,000 to 4,200. So this is, you know, kind of a visit to the upper end of the range. You know, just recently, whether it's March of this year, or October of last year, we were below the range. So I think, you know, probably the next move lower is is you know going to kind of probably transpire into the end of the year. And so it's a, probably a pretty good idea for investors to kind of, you know, act in accordingly, right? You know, go ahead and rebalance those portfolios, maybe get a little bit higher up in market cap, higher up in quality, um, because we probably will see kind of the, the inverse of this into, into the second half. Mona, do you see it the same way, especially when you do have the soft landing consensus taking shape, including among some of the bigger bears on Wall Street in recent months, disinflation traction, peak Fed expectations, and oh, by the way, so far, some better-than-expected earnings reports from some of the biggest uh, names so far. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we actually think there's a little bit of a more bullish case to be made here. In fact, um, it's a triple whammy, as you alluded to. We not only got the better inflation data last week, that's coming even as the economy is holding up. And in fact, there was a bit of nerves heading into earnings season. But thus far, in its early days, 7.5% of the S&P 500 has reported Amongst those, 84% have beaten, and in fact, they've beaten by 8% or so. So coming into the quarter, we were looking at about negative 7% earnings growth. We're now looking at about negative 4%. Now, we still have uh, some ways to go, but the good news is earnings revisions are moving higher. We think that could uh, drive market returns as well. Now, keep in mind, we would be cautious on extrapolating you know, the 17% return we've seen year to date. 
um, to a straight line higher in the second half. Of course, bouts of volatility are normal, are probably likely. But keep in mind, there's a lot of money sitting in CDs right now. Over the next six to 12 months, as that CD money comes due, uh, there's some reinvestment risk there. Do they want to take a lower rate of return reinvesting in CDs? Or think about the markets, which have returned much higher thus far than that 5% uh, that they could be getting in in cash-like instruments. So I do think there is uh, some momentum behind markets and then some catalysts that we could see down the road as well. Samir, what should investors be doing with that CD money uh, or maybe some of that equity money that they should be reallocating? I mean, uh, fixed income, longer dated, what? Yes, we would be using a little bit of a barbell on the short end and on the longer end. We like the fact that the Fed's probably going to continue to raise rates here. Again, inflation is not under control in our opinion. Um, If anything, this 3% print that you just got was largely built off of base effects. Remember, oil was about $120.00. Uh, in June of last year. So that makes the comps very easy. Um, But we would also be locking in kind of the, you know, long end, um, especially at rates above 4%. We think once inflation does get under control, those 4% plus yields will look pretty good in that type of inflation environment. Mona, let's talk about the financials. I mean, we talk a lot about the big banks, but I can't help but notice today the KRE, the regionals, uh, closed up four and a quarter percent back at levels from late March. They've been stubbornly below there for all this time. Uh, is that a read through on the bigger bank earnings? Is this still worth playing as we continue to get more regional bank numbers uh, you know, tomorrow and through the next several days? Yeah, you know, we think this talks to a bigger theme of the broadening of market participation. So that's one uh, area that we are seeing some interest in going forward. And we think that could be a theme throughout the second half of the year and into 2024. Uh, The market may not be led by just a narrow set of technology, AI-based companies, but we could get some broadening into cyclical sectors like financials. Now, to your point on the regionals, it is interesting. The big bank readings we've gotten so far have indicated that, one, um, the higher yields have helped. Despite the inverted yield curves, they are seeing better net income margins. Uh, net income interest margins. And secondly, there is this opportunity that we see in front of large banks and even some of the regional banks in that the IPO market and capital markets broadly may start coming back in, if you think about the next 6, 12, 18 months. Uh, It's really been quiet in terms of capital market activity, M&A, IPOs, et cetera. Um, There is a real catalyst there that we may start seeing more activity there that benefits uh, largely the large banks that have exposure, but also certain regional banks that can take advantage of uh, supporting M&A deals in particular. So we certainly think that there are opportunities to get involved um, in the banking and financial sector. And thus far, uh, the yield environment has actually been a a positive rather than a negative. All right. Mona, Samir. Thank you. Uh, Looks like interactive brokers earnings numbers are out. Kate Rooney has them. Kate. Hey, John. So a mixed picture here for interactive brokers. Let's start with EPS. This is the adjusted number, $1.32. That was a miss by $0.08. Street was looking for $1.40 adjusted. Revenue number, $1.06 billion. We don't have a comparable number there. Also looking here at trading volumes. It looks like trading volumes is mixed. Customer customer accounts, meanwhile, increasing about 19%. And darts, that's daily active revenue trades, a key metric here for the brokerage companies. That was down about 14%. Commission revenue, pretty much flat. And then net interest income, guys, as rates are rising here, that increased 99%. So almost doubling there as benchmark rates rose. Looks like the stock here has moved around a little bit, slightly lower here in the after hours. Back to you, John. All right. Kate, thank you. 
Let's get now to CNBC senior markets commentator Michael Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Mike, what's on your mind? Well, we're looking at the New York Stock Exchange Composite Index, a very old, very broad uh, index of the overall stock market. It's pretty much stocks of all sizes, about 2,400 of them, I think. And it made a new one-year high. Uh, today. So we've been waiting for, uh, you know, things to look a little bit stronger under the surface of the mega cap driven indexes. And that is definitely happening right here. Now, still well below the all time highs. of if you went back uh, a couple of years, I think we're still more than a thousand points below. So very similar to the uh, S&P 500. We're at one year highs, maybe like 15, 16 month highs, uh, but still looking up at the early 2022 record high. Still an encouraging sign. A lot of folks like the uh, New York Composite uh, for a lot of reasons, including the sector makeup. Speaking of sectors, uh, semis versus energy uh, is a relationship that I've, I've monitored from time to time, shown it here. Uh, there really uh, been like two, two, ends of the, two ends of the spectrum here. There's the digital economy growth story within semis and then the real asset trade uh, and maybe global instability trade with energy. This goes back to April, end of April of 2020. It's right after the initial burst off of the COVID lows for the overall stock market and for energy in particular. You see, it's kind of a dead heat just about right now. Uh, semis just nosing up against them. But what I find interesting is the way they were just completely opposite. Uh, for these periods of time. So last year, it was energy throwing a shutout against tech. This year, it's the reverse. Nothing says they have to continue to move inversely. Uh, if you do have a, a pretty good growth story with the secular tech trade going, uh, they can hold up. But I think it's also a good reminder that energy's held on to most of those gains from last year, when, by the way, it outperformed the S&P by like 80 percentage points, Morgan. Uh, I love that you have just drawn attention to that. You've certainly talked about it in months past on the show. Um, I'm curious, though, Mike, about what we saw with the Russell 2000 today, 1.3% gain. The transport's also a fresh 52-week high, up 2%. I realize that we've seen both of those averages uh, rallying a little more meaningfully in recent days, but uh, does it just speak to the rotation that's afoot more broadly and and the widening out of this rally, or, or is there something more afoot? I think all that's going on, Uh, Morgan. I think we're at that phase where the headline indexes have moved far enough. If you feel underinvested, uh, maybe it's not the most comfortable thing to grab at the most overheated part of the market. You also, of course, have yields backing off macroeconomic risk, at least perceived to be receding in the immediate term, and the banks are doing better. So financial stocks, credit conditions, all the stuff that was working against small caps. You also do have, and you hear a lot of our guests come on and say, look, if you want to look at long-term mean reversion possibilities, small caps look cheaper, they look less loved, more under-owned, and so maybe that's a destination for some fresh capital. Not to say uh, that it's going to, you know, it's going to work seamlessly, but I think all that stuff's been been going on right here as people have grown a little more comfortable with the macro uh, backdrop. All right, Mike Santoli, good to see you. We'll see you again yeah. later this hour. Sure Speaking of transports, JB Hunt. Those earnings are out. Pippa Stevens has the numbers. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Morgan. JP, JB Hunt missing expectations with both the top and bottom line for the second quarter. EPS coming in at 181 per share. That was against estimates of 192. Revenue at 3.13 billion versus expectations of 3.3 billion. Revenue was down 18 percent, with revenue falling across all the business segments. Intermodal volumes down 7 percent year over year. And the company said that there was weaker overall freight activity, particularly import-related freight. And those shares down about 44 percent here right now. Morgan, back to you. All right, Pippa Stevens, thank you. Yeah, it sort of speaks to 
uh, this idea of rolling recessions, right, and that there's been a freight recession afoot. And here it is showing up in J.B. Hunt, which tends to be one of the early reporters uh, within the transportation and, and freight group. Yeah, ouch, down more than 3.5%, at least initially. Well, bank stocks, big bank stocks, have been rallying after big earnings beats from Bank of America and Morgan Stanley. Up next, we're going to hear from the CEO of those two companies and discuss what investors should expect from Goldman Sachs when it reports tomorrow. Overtime's back in two. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right. Welcome back to Overtime. Bank of America and Morgan Stanley leading the banks higher after beating Wall Street's earning estimates. Leslie Picker spoke to the CEOs of both companies. She's been very busy today. She joins us now with the highlights. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Morgan. Yeah, both Morgan Stanley and Bank of America beating analyst estimates for the top and bottom lines in Q2, continuing the trend of better than expected bank earnings this quarter. Uh, one big question mark throughout the whole earnings season has been just this idea that investment banking and sales and trading across the street, uh, that business has been notoriously quiet during the second quarter. But optimistic outlooks from both executives help propel their stocks higher today. Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman said he's recently seen a tonality shift when talking to clients. I think we bottomed. I think we bottomed. Yeah, I think we bottomed in this business, you know, four or six weeks ago. Now, how much it improves from that for the rest of the year is unknown. Next year, definitely a pickup. So I think, you know, and I'm seeing it with the conversations I'm having with other CEOs. They've, we just felt like, you know, April was, was weak and first half of May also weak. And then it started picking up second half in June, where it's, you know, it's not gangbusters, but we're off the bottom. Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan said a more stable macro backdrop is helping drive more appetite for deal making as well. As the markets are stabilized, as the view is that the Fed is closer being done, if not done, on rate raises, as the market settles, and gets, so we're seeing more activity. So you saw, saw some deals get done this quarter. You're seeing more discussion, a lot of pipeline, a lot of activity. And so we feel that if the stability continues to hold in the market, you'll see that activity come in as you move out of the summer into the fall. And, and that's important because that capital formation is what will lessen the probability of a recession out in the future because that capital form- formation, capital spending, is part of the drill that makes America great. Lots of green shoots out there. Uh, Tomorrow we'll get another big read, though, on this market when Goldman Sachs reports before the opening bell, guys. Yeah, I guess that's going to be especially important for Goldman Sachs, but the investment banking doesn't help the regionals. There have been talk that the rising rates Mm -hmm. and the impact on margins was maybe going to hurt them, but they, they had a big day today. 
and have been on the upswing. A any take on how they're weathering this earnings season and things uh, like signal from commercial real estate chatter from the bigger banks? Yeah, there's been a lot of pessimism surrounding this space for the last three months. Part of that has to do with regulation, the anticipation that greater capital rules will put a dent into margins. Part of it has to do with just this deposit flight that people are concerned about, this idea that there's a migration either to higher funding uh, costs, things like CDs, money market funds, or the big banks. Uh, and that's impacting the ability for um, regionals also to kind of maintain those margins. But we saw PNC reports today, which helped send uh, some of the regionals higher. And even though they kind of revised their outlook for net interest income, that's that profitability metric for loan making, they revised that actually downward. Uh, but to a, the extent that, that wasn't so concerning to the markets, you can see their PNC closed up two and a half percent higher uh, just because they expect things to kind of stabilize from here. And that's really what the market is looking for, is kind of that stability at this point in time, especially as they're anticipating all that uncertainty on the regulatory front, all that uncertainty on the economic front. Um, just kind of seeing things kind of normalize, stabilize is, is a little bit of comfort for the market. Okay, we'll see if Western Alliance results continue that narrative. We're awaiting those as well. Leslie, thanks. Mm -hmm. So what do all these numbers mean for Goldman? That stock closing higher today ahead of its Q2 results tomorrow. Joining us now is CFRA Director of Equity Research, Ken Leon. Ken, uh, some of the bank CEOs saying investment banking has bottomed maybe, but uh, you downgraded Goldman to hold. Uh, not, not enough of an upswing on the horizon for Goldman? Yeah, there's a world of difference, um, you know, so we, we do think the second quarter was the bottom, but we're not going to see a V-shaped recovery in the capital markets, uh, particularly investment banking. Uh, it's probably going to be well into 2024. And earnings estimates for the street have come down substantially for Goldman Sachs. Um, and the outlook uh, for their traditional businesses still is moderate growth. Uh, it's going to be really hard to really put in uh, a quarter where they're firing on all cylinders in 2023. And of course, tomorrow, David Solomon's gonna be under the spotlight in terms of whether we see uh, some significant write-offs of the diversification uh, into Green Sky, Marcus, and their whole consumer strategy, uh, which has been noted to be pulled back. Yeah, which is exactly where I was going to go with my question to you, Ken, was how noisy do you expect this report to be uh, in terms of those write downs? And, and I guess just how sweeping could uh, strategy communication be for, from Solomon as the, as the bank uh, shifts away from that? Well, you even go back earlier this year to investor day. So they kind of laid out uh, all the pluses and minuses. Uh, but what the investors are looking at is essentially Goldman Sachs uh, with a core business over the last couple of years, uh, which is strong and should gain wallet share, like Morgan Stanley, uh, on a global basis over the next 12 to 18 months. But it's the what if. The what if for a smart investor is how do you get the stock up or a higher multiple when they haven't diversified into the right areas or extended investment and, that, and wealth management? as Morgan Stanley did. So it's going to be a really tough narrative uh, to explain, uh, but they got to put the diversification behind them before investors look cleanly at the outlook for Goldman Sachs. How long is that going to take? Uh, what do you need to hear to be convinced? 
Well, unlike uh, Citigroup, which is a multi-year transformation, or what was Wells Fargo, I think um, what would change probably is, first, they're going to clean the deck by doing these large write-offs, and then they need to probably make a substantial uh, acquisition in asset or wealth management uh, to bolster their scale there. Uh, that will be another day, another story, uh, but directionally, they're going to make better decisions in the future. All right. Ken, thanks for joining us. Ken Leon. Shares of industrial real estate giant Prologis getting pummeled despite beating Wall Street's profit estimates and raising its full-year guidance. Up next, the company's CEO breaks down the quarter and discusses the outlook for warehouse demand. Plus, Netflix hitting a 52-week high today ahead of earnings. A top analyst explains why he thinks the stock has a lot more room to run. That's coming up on Overtime. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. We've got breaking news on AT&T. Julia Borston has the details. Julia. John, big news from AT&T after the company's stock hit a three-decade low on concerns about its legacy lead-wrapped cables, concerns which were raised by a Wall Street Journal story. Now, in a letter filed with federal court, AT&T's attorney saying that AT&T believes it is now in the public interest to leave the cables in place to permit further analysis by interested parties. Now, the company saying that its lead-clad cables pose no danger in that in 2021, AT&T agreed to remove them simply to avoid the expense of litigation. They're now saying that based on, quote, our repeated testing of these cables, data and methods we have made publicly available, we have serious concerns with the journal's testing methods and the reliability of its results and reporting. This letter goes on to question the validity of the Wall Street Journal's investigation and its results. AT&T also saying in this filing that less than 10% of the cable in AT&T's national system is lead-clad cable. So, Morgan, the company coming out swinging here. Back over to you. All right. Julia, I mean, what's amazing to me is that the Wall Street Journal first released its investigation on July 9th, and we really didn't see this pick up momentum in terms of the impact on the stocks and reaction from AT&T and others uh, in terms of public comment until just now. I mean, why did this take so long? Do we know? I mean, I can't really answer that question, Morgan. That's something that only AT&T would probably be able to answer. But it's interesting to read in this letter the the cost-benefit analysis the company made of whether or not they were going to, to fight this issue. They decided to remove the cables because from a litigation standpoint, it was simply easier. And now they're saying it's not that they were removing the cables because there was actually anything wrong with them. And now they believe it's in the best interest of the, com- of, of the company as well as of the public to have a more thorough investigation from dis- disinterested third parties, from objective parties, um, and they're really indicating here that they believe that um, the journal was not being objective in its reporting because they were relying exclusively on environmental testing um, that was commissioned by the journal. All right. Morgan. Yeah, Julia, thank you. Mike Santoli back with us. Mike, uh, this stock, AT&T, is down 32% over the last three months, and it's just really the last couple bucks 
that's happened in July. So uh, e even if it's not the, the lead issue, there are other problems with this, right? Well, there certainly would be, although I do think this last phase lower in the stock, this flush, especially yesterday, uh, did come among gathering concerns or at least uncertainty about how to quantify any potential exposure related to the, the lead sheath cables. Yesterday, I look back at the Citigroup downgrade of the stock yesterday morning, which did seem to drive a lot of yesterday's decline. What was it, 5 or 6% yesterday? And the analysts said they were relatively unaware of this issue until the journal report. They did some of their own legwork on it, trying to quantify it. But they sort of granted that there's no way to put firm numbers on what this might mean down the road. Uh, but it did see, and they even said, if it turns out to be just sort of, you know, a multi-month overhang on the stock and then we can get it sorted out, maybe the stock's going to look like a buying opportunity. The point being, I don't think AT&T has, has had the last word on what this is going to mean. I doubt the journal's report is the last word on it either. So it'll get hashed out. But to your point, yes, this is an out-of-favor area beforehand. You know, people were just not enamored of the longer-term story, the high fixed cost. I mean, you could kind of run down the list of reasons why it seemed like uh, it was not necessarily in a good spot. But there's no doubt in my mind in the last month or so, investors with, you know, a lot of these big legacy liabilities on their mind from other companies uh, just decided to to ditch rather than stick around and figure it out. All right. Mike Santoli, thank you. And of course, the stock AT&T is down 13 percent since that journal story was first released earlier in the month. Industrial REIT Prologis, meantime, reporting earnings this morning, raising its full-year earnings outlook after posting record profits and sales. Despite the strong report, though, the stock's selling off, finishing the day down 3%. Joining, out, joining us now is Prologis CEO Hamid Mogadam. Hamid, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Morgan. Good to be here. So a really, a really strong report. Uh, and yet analysts pointing to a, a number of metrics, things like reduced global rent growth forecasts, lower lease proposals, occupancy de decline, uh, suggesting that there's signs of slowing in the market more broadly and perhaps that's pressuring the stock. It, what do you think of that? Well, I think uh, our business has had the good fortune of being on steroids in the last two to three years, uh, way beyond uh, anything of, um, in the normal range. And the business is moderating, as we've been uh, talking about for a couple of quarters. Uh, but it's actually moderating at a slower pace than we thought. And if you look at it in the context of uh, 30, 40 years that I've been doing this, it's probably in the top 10% of markets that we've operated in. So I think the market is getting too excited about virtually nothing. Okay. Um, I mean, we do have higher interest rates. I know you've made some... Um acquisitions, uh, including including a deal recently with Blackstone as well. Why do you feel, if, the, if, if it is moderating, albeit at maybe a slower pace than you had previously anticipated, uh, why do you feel confident to make more investments in this market right now? Sure, because uh, rents um, that uh, are in industrial portfolios, for example, ours and the deal that we recently acquired, are 50 to 65 percent higher than what the rents are today. So rental growth and therefore earnings growth is not, in, uh, is not in any way dependent on marginal rental growth from here. Just capturing that upside will drive earnings into the foreseeable future at double-digit levels. Uh, so that's what the market is, I think, missing. So, I mean, yeah, I was struck by the net effective rent change that you guys talked about on your earnings call, up 87 uh, percent, especially strong in Phoenix, up 130 7%, North Jersey up 150%. Uh, 
Southern California, 181 percent. Why, in particularly those markets where it's strong, why is it up so much? How can those tenants afford uh, to pay that much more? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, the last two to three years have been exceptional in terms of demand for our product and therefore pricing of our product. At the same time, generally long-term supply in these uh, really great markets is limited because nobody really wants warehouses built near them. And as a result, there are all kinds of moratoria and other difficulties in terms of bringing on supply. Um, that demand has moderated. Of course it would moderate. It can't go at double its normal level forever. And, uh, but but uh, it had the embedded rental growth in this portfolio is not going to go away. And uh, once we realize it, I think we will have substantially higher earnings as a result of that, particularly because of these markets. A big part of your narrative also seems to be that the uh, construction of new industrial property is going to slow down into 24, so there won't be so much supply on the market that'll help keep prices higher. Are there particular markets where you see um, the, the build-out slowing particularly quickly? I would say um, the supply is slowing down in pretty much every market that we operate in, very few exceptions. And uh, last year was there was a surge in supply because rents had gone up so much. But we know everything that's going to be delivered in 2024 because you would have had to have started the, the construction today. So we know with almost certainty what the uh, supply is going to be in 2024. And we think it's going to be moderate and in, in the normal range. Let me also add that, um, you know, most observers have been asking me about the year in which uh, supply will finally exceed demand since 2011. Uh, and I'm not kidding you, <laughs> since 2011. So yes, it finally is gonna happen in 2023, but I think it's a temporary uh, pause in, in what is a very good fundamental picture long-term. I do wanna talk about some of your other businesses that you're building out and diversifying with. The Essentials business, which is focused on solar production and storage, Prologis Mobility, which is the EV business as well. How are you thinking about the secular opportunities in something like green tech infrastructure? And what does that mean in terms of investments for the company? Sure, first of all, we've been at the um, solar and energy game for about a decade. We are now the second largest producer of rooftop solar energy in the United States and expect to be number one by the end of this year. So this has been going on for some time, but the concept is actually pretty, pretty simple. We have other surfaces in addition to our floors to rent, our roofs, our sidewalls, and our parking areas where we can um, rent them in effect for EV charging. More and more of our customers are electrifying their fleets and we have long-term relationships with them through our leases. So it's the perfect opportunity to supply them with all these products and services that they're gonna need to buy from somebody else anyway. And we're in the best position to, uh, to bring that to them because of our scale and our, our ability to do these things on, on a very economical basis. Like putting washing machines in a multifamily unit makes sense. I mean, thank you. Yeah. CEO of Prologis. <laughs> All right, time for a CNBC News update with Christina Partsinebolis. Christina.
Thanks, John. The South Korean military reporting that North Korea has fired an apparent ballistic missile into the Sea of Japan today. The missile test coming a day after a U.S. nuclear submarine visited a South Korean port for the first time in four decades. On the same day as well, the Pentagon says a U.S. soldier was detained by the regime when he willfully crossed the border border into North Korea while on a tour of the DMZ, which I've done about 10 years ago. Florida health officials are reporting a new case of malaria, bringing the national total to eight infections. The newest case was found in Sarasota County, the same location as the first seven. These are the first locally acquired infections in 20 years, but the CDC says the outbreak fits the pattern of past infections that remained relatively small and contained. Egyptian authorities canceled Travis's Scott uh, Giza, Giza, uh, sorry, I should say Pyramid concert, saying his performances contradict the culture of identity or the cultural identity of Egyptian people. Authorities say the strange rituals from Travis Scott uh, happened at concerts were inconsistent with societal values. There were no details on what those strange rituals were, but the cancellation notice came just a week after Scott announced he would premiere his new album in front of one of the seven wonders of the world. I guess he'll have to find another wonder. John? I think he's right. got six others to work with, uh, Perhaps, perhaps, but Travis is known to be a little controversial. Up next, Mike Santoli is going to look at what the latest reading on retail sales could mean for the market and the economy when overtime returns. Welcome back to Overtime, a name that has been watched closely in the wake of all the regional banking turmoil, Western Alliance. Those earnings are out. Leslie Picker has the numbers. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Morgan. Yeah, those shares are down about 3%, or 2.5% currently, uh, after missing analyst estimates on the bottom line by just about one cent, coming in at 196 per share there. But revenue beat, that uh, came in around 669 million, up 21%. In the quarter, uh, they did say they grew deposits by three and a half billion dollars in the quarter. Uh, that's up incrementally from the update they gave in mid-May amid all of that turmoil you were talking about. If you recall, Western Alliance was among the regional banks that was kind of caught up in the volatility in the aftermath of the Silicon Valley Bank uh, turmoil, as well as uh, Silvergate. Um, First Republic, it was kind of rumored to be potentially one on the chopping block, but ultimately was able to stave off the short sellers to stave off some of that volatility. Shares were actually up 8% going into earnings just today. as And throughout the quarter, they were able to kind of attenuate some of those concerns by showing those inflows that I mentioned as a result of, uh, you know, in May. And the question kind of remained, how, what would those inflows do to margins? How would that impact deposits? Would their funding costs rise from here? We did see net interest margin in the second quarter uh, tick up a little bit to 3.4%. Um, I'm sorry, that actually was a decrease from 3.79% in the first quarter. But you can see shares have come back a little bit, down now 1.9% after reporting 2Q results, guys. Yeah, narrowing quickly, too. Uh, Now down just 1%. We'll see where it goes uh, with more information from the call. Leslie, thanks. Now, U.S. retail sales barely rising in June, up just 0.2%. Mike Santoli is back with a closer look. Mike? Yeah, John, the month-over-month number is pretty soft on the headline, a little bit better uh, if you look at some of the core measures, but this is the very long-term 
path of overall monthly retail sales in dollar terms going back more than 30 years. Because I wanted to really show the absolute level of spending and how dramatically higher it is versus before the pandemic. So we see what's happened here. Uh, this jump was both, of course, because the front loading of goods demand during and after the pandemic, of course, as well as higher prices. Remember, it's a nominal number. So inflation gets put in here. What I think is interesting is Retail and food service, excluding gasoline expenditures, you know, it's essentially on the same, roughly the same trajectory as before, maybe a little steeper as before the pandemic throughout that long expansion. You see it's a very slow and steady grind higher through an economic expansion. So even though it's kind of faltering, maybe we're going to give back some, the, the consumer's decelerating, it's really not changing much in terms of the absolute level of spending. Maybe there's some give back you can have without really having the overall economy uh, really give way in a dramatic fashion, John or Morgan. All right. Mike Santoli, thank you. Beating on earnings and hiking its full-year forecast were not enough to help shares of Lockheed Martin today. Up next, we will discuss what that could mean for the rest of the defense sector. Stay with us. Welcome back. Lockheed Martin today kicking off earnings season for the aerospace and defense sector, reporting a beat and a raise as revenue grew 8 percent and the backlog ballooned to a record $158 billion, enabling the weapons maker to raise full year sales and earnings guidance. Well, CFO Jay Malave noting the return to growth a year earlier than forecast and COO Frank St. John telling me the supply chain overall is also growing despite some lingering issues with things like solid rocket motors, which power missiles. Speaking of missiles, demand is especially strong for missiles and air and missile defense. That's thanks to Ukraine and the need to replenish stockpiles. St. John saying investments last year to ramp production for systems like Javelin and Pac-3 missiles, HIMARS, etc. But those are now, quote, starting to come through with increased production rates. F-16 fighter jets are in focus, too, as allies move to supply Ukraine with them. Lockheed will be involved in training, sustainment and transfer, according to St. John, and would be ready to build more when those countries needed to backfill. All of this as lawmakers continue to hash out U.S. defense policy for fiscal 2024. And budgets not only here but globally do continue to climb. Following results, Cowan saying, quote, based on LMT's healthy beat and the record level of still unobligated DOD O&M, so that's operations and maintenance appropriations, we think there is potential for favorable revenue surprises at upcoming defense revenue reports. Speaking of reports, we're going to get more of those in coming days. The other defense primes like Boeing, L3 Harris, General Dynamics, Raytheon and Northrop Grumman, they're all on tap next week. Meantime, shares of Lockheed did end the day in the red down about 3%. But, John, this was a very solid report. Interesting. All right. One name that didn't end the day in the red, Microsoft. They closed at a record high and added more than 100 points to the Dow's rally today after announcing the pricing of its new AI tools. Up next, a top analyst weighs in on how that might impact Microsoft's bottom line. We'll come right back. Welcome back. Microsoft closing at an all-time high after announcing a $30 per month AI subscription for Microsoft 365 at its Inspire conference today. The company also unveiling visual search capabilities in Bing Chat, among other announcements. The news helping the company reach a nearly $2.7 trillion market cap. Joining us now is Tyler Radka from Citi. Tyler, just because they're going to charge $30 a month doesn't mean people are going to pay it. I mean, but the street seems to think people are going to pay it. Had they yet proven the productivity uh, improvements that it's going to take for customers to justify buying this? Yeah, John, it's, it's a good question. I think 
we don't know the the answer quite yet. The exact release date will will be coming out in the coming months. But what we do know is that there's been a lot of interest from some of the early adopter customers. Uh, they they've been oversubscribed in terms of some of the private previews that they've announced. Um, and and clearly, uh, this price point, the thirty dollars that you mentioned, was a lot higher than we thought. Our view was maybe it'd be in the five to twenty dollar range. So clearly. We think they're pricing it at a premium. It's probably reflective of the underlying value, um, but but to your point, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But again, this is thirty dollars per user per month in a base of over three hundred million subscribers that continues to grow. So certainly, even if they only get you know a couple percentage points of adoption, that can be very meaningful uh, in terms of the revenue contribution. Going back to the pricing piece of this and 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 what it means in terms of underlying value. It, is it appreciated out there in the marketplace yet just how how strong that underlying value is? And I guess what I mean is how quickly would you expect adoption to happen at a $30 price point? Yeah, so I, I think what we've seen with a lot of these generative AI or chat GPT tools is incredible viral adoption, right? I mean, the stats on chat GPT, it was kind of the most the biggest viral adoption curve we've seen in, in history, right? You, you've seen things like Adobe Firefly, tons of tons of signups. So we do think there's going to be a huge interest uh, in terms of vetting out the features, uh, learning about the use cases. Um, and so we, we would expect once the general availability gets announced um, that, that we could see certainly a, a very strong interest in, in trialing the product, but ultimately converting that uh, to paid customers over time. Tyler, whose strategy do you think is better? You mentioned Adobe. Adobe hiked the price of its overall Creative Cloud suite um, and added AI, at least so far, as just a, a piece of that. Microsoft is putting a layer in above. Now, granted, Microsoft is a, the ubiquitous productivity tool. Maybe there wasn't that much to gain for them uh, in, in raw subscription numbers. How should investors think about the difference in approach? Yeah, so I think the, the opportunity at, at Microsoft, and we're, we have a buy on Microsoft, we're, we're neutral on, on Adobe, but I think for Microsoft, we see kind of a multifaceted uh, approach to AI, right? They're monetizing it in Office 365, which we talked about, but they also own kind of the leading cloud computing layer for running GPUs and NVIDIA-like uh, workloads, right? And so they're, they're monetizing it on the cloud infrastructure side. And then also we haven't talked about search, right? I mean, search is a, a market where there's a huge opportunity uh, to, to gain share relative to their two or 3% market share they have. So we think there's there's more uh, drivers at, at Microsoft. They're more durable. Adobe, we, we acknowledge there could be some interesting monetization in the near term. Ultimately, our view is the consumer market is going mm -hmm. to be more competitive and uh, we, we do see increased competition, ultimately uh, offsetting some of the monetization for Adobe. Okay. Tyler Radka, thanks for joining us. Microsoft finishing the day up 4%, new all-time high, closing in on $2.7 trillion market cap. Yep. Tomorrow's earnings calendar is jam-packed with some of the biggest names on Wall Street. And our next guest says one of them has been overlooked during the recent market rally. We'll reveal that name when Overtime Returns.
Welcome back. Investors are getting set for another huge day of earnings tomorrow. Goldman Sachs and U.S. Bank Corp report before the bell. And after the bell, we'll break down results from Tesla, Netflix, IBM, and United Airlines. And speaking of Netflix, once again, it hit a 52-week high today, trading at levels not seen since January of 2022. And our next guest says it will head even higher. Joining us now is UBS analyst John Hodlick. John, why do you think it's going to head higher? And I ask that knowing that there's really three main things I think we're looking at for Netflix tomorrow. Paid sharing, ad tier, and strike impacts. Right. That's exactly right. Um, and I think all those are moving in the right direction. And as a result, the financials are moving in the right direction. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, with, with Netflix, the guide is, is an important part, at least in terms of the short-term movement. And uh, they're not going to give subscriber guidance, but I think their underlying guidance that they do provide for next quarter will show a m- meaningful acceleration in the in the not just the sort of metrics, but in the in the financial health of this company. Uh, and we see, should see some dramatic acceleration as as a result of the the, the, uh, the those initiatives that you're talking about over the next couple of quarters. A year plus ago, we were talking about international expansion and um, you know maturing of the business there being the most important thing for Netflix. Is that no longer a big deal? No, that's that's still a big deal. I mean, I would say in general, the growth has been we got to remember only about a third of the subs are in the United States. Two thirds are outside. But there was a lot of those markets are still massively underpenetrated. So the company has been shifting its content budget from U.S. language or English language and U.S. content to, to more local language, uh, which I think is very different than what's going on competitively from the rest of the streamers, who I think are going to are in the process of pulling back. And I think that should drive growth. But the real growth drivers, as you, we already mentioned, is, is really the ad tier and then the fix to, to password sharing. Both of those, I think you, you, you know, we should get some more color from the company this quarter, and I, and I think you'll see that really kick in in the second half. Is Netflix in a good position to withstand what could be prolonged strikes from writers and actors versus its media peers? Yeah, we think so. Uh, and again, part of the fact is uh, they do so much content production outside the U.S. that's not impacted by the strike. Uh, and as a result, they have you know, a tremendous amount of growth outside the U.S., you know, definitely in contrast to a lot of their competitors. But also, they have a lot of content that's sort of already done. And they're, they're, also, already li- and they're also licensing a lot of third-party content that goes on their platform and actually does very well from a rating standpoint. And again, as the other sort of large media companies with streaming businesses retrench on the streaming side, you're going to see them step into that licensing market even more, which is also good for, for Netflix and gives them more content along the way. Very quickly, John, AT&T and Verizon, we just got that statement from AT&T earlier in the hour, mm-hmm. the impact from these lead cables and what it's done to the stock. Oh, it's crushed the stocks. Um, AT&T, Verizon, uh, even the towers, uh, which we cover and, and, and are constructive on. Um, and we think it's overblown. Um, you know, the, these companies here, you start starting with AT&T and Verizon, have not deployed infrastructure with lead in it since the 50s. Um, it's a low single-digit percentage of their overall infrastructure. The testing that they have done in the past has not shown any contamination, nor have they had any issues okay. with personnel. So we think it's overblown, and, um, and the, the massive moves in these stocks are overdone. Got it. John Hodlick, thanks for joining us. And, of course, sure. fresh 52-week highs for the S&P and the NASDAQ and the transports today, John. I'm particularly interested in the regionals reporting in the morning, given the move in the KRE today and what we saw from Western Alliance. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here at Overtime. Fast Money starts now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. 
take your business further at tmobile.com/slash now. 